This episode's guest is Dave O'Sullivan from Go To Physio. Dave is a consultant rugby physiotherapist for the English Rugby Union, who has worked at the 2019 Rugby Union World Cup in Japan and the 2020 Six Nations. He was also the England Rugby League physiotherapist for the 2017 Rugby League World Cup in Australia. Dave has the unique honour to be involved in a World Cup final in Rugby League and Rugby Union. Dave also is the clinical director for Pro Sport Physiotherapy in Huddersfield in the UK, where he has a five treatment room private practice with a staff of 12. Dave is also currently working with the Huddersfield Giants, Warrington Wolves and Hull Football Club, where he mentors the head physiotherapist alongside working with professional golfers and other top sporting professionals. Dave set up the Pro Sport Academy Go-To Therapist Mentorship in 2015 to give therapists an opportunity to learn how to treat the cause and not just the patient's symptoms. Dave teaches his exact assessment, treatment and return to play progressions in the mentorship alongside in-depth critical reasoning of understanding the why. Dave has now mentored over 200 therapists from Ireland, the UK, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, USA and Canada. On this episode, Dave and I discussed the following topics. Dave gave us a brief overview of his background. Dave shares with us his rehabilitation system that he teaches within his mentorship. I asked Dave if he utilizes Newell's constraints-based approach in his rehab methodology. I asked Dave for his thoughts on ACL and hamstring injuries and their rehabilitation. I asked Dave for his thoughts on the efficacy of table tests and muscle testing and their carryover to ground-based movements. I asked Dave if there's anything within the sports medicine field that he feels will have a big impact and influence on the profession in the future. I asked Dave for his top courses and resources. I asked Dave for his top and current book recommendations. And I asked Dave if he could invite five people to dinner dead or alive who would he invite and why guys this is a really great episode with dave and i hope you really enjoy it dave thanks a million for making time i really do appreciate it just for the listeners who may not be too familiar with who you are just give us your background yeah i'm a physiotherapist um originally from uh cork in ireland and went uh went over to the uk 2005 to study physio uh, at a two years up in Carlow, uh, IT, doing physiology and health science then. Uh, got my physio degree and then kind of um, went straight into support uh, sports. So kind of, you, you know, as a physio, you're told, oh, you need to do your rotations, you need to do this, you need to do that. So I was kind of went against the grain a little bit and went straight into sport. Um, worked in rugby league, rugby union, uh, pretty much for the last 12, 13 years, I think. It might be 14 years now, I can't, yeah, since 2008, whatever that is. Um, and um yeah just been being kind of working in sport on and off um at the start of a lot of teams uh professional full-time and then uh nowadays uh I've been very fortunate to work with England Rugby Union on a consultancy basis so that's kind of just more involved in going into camps for sections at a time and then coming back out and that allows me to run my private practice alongside it so so that's kind of the um the ideal scenario for me at this stage I've, I've kind of done my my due so to speak in full-time sport which is uh 
it was brilliant at the time, but uh, obviously when, when you get kids and, and, and stuff like that, your, your priorities change kind of a little bit. Um, so yeah, so um, that's kind of my background clinically. And then um, I set up as, as I was coming out of professional sport 2015, I set up the Pro Sport Academy uh, to kind of go alongside my clinic Pro Sport Physio. Um, and that was um, originally to start um, just just coaching and mentoring therapists, really. And um, I'll be honest with you, Robbie, it, it kind of I thought it, it'd go for a couple of years, and um, you know, and, and and we see what happens, and then I'll I'll go fully into the clinic. But it, it kind of took off, really. I'm, I'm a bit surprised where we're at with it, and very privileged we've we've had over 450 therapists go through it now. I think in uh, 24 countries all over the world, so. Uh, sometimes I kind of pinch myself a little bit when uh, when I, when I see uh, how many people have gone through it, and um, yeah, so we kind of the big thing we're doing there now is just helping therapists, which I don't I know you want to kind of chat about is is just really get get some structure, get some um, and and really simplify things for them, and and you know take all the stuff they've done, put it into a very simple structure to ultimately give them confidence to to get results with people. So be I kind of split my time between that um the the professional sport consultancy and the the private practice uh equally now be, between the three yeah great stuff and just a little bit more about your role when you were in full-time sports you were with Munster Rugby before you were with Huddersfield and Leeds is that correct yeah Leeds Rhinos uh Munster uh for a year and a bit just over a year and a bit then I went back to Huddersfield Giants um yeah and then I came out of full-time uh, with, with Huddersfield then. And you were involved with the English um, uh, league for the World Cup, weren't you? The English um, league? Yeah, league. yeah. So I started rugby with England Rugby League, went to, to Australia with them um, in 2017 for the, the World Cup, which was a brilliant experience. Mm. Uh, got to the final and lost. Um, that was 2017. Um, 18, I went to Denver with them. Um, we, we played New Zealand out in Denver, which was a brilliant experience, mid-season tournament. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I started, I got involved with the, the rugby union side then um, in 2019, uh, summer 2019. Then obviously I had to um, kind of uh, back off my, my other responsibilities then. So I, got, I was very lucky to go to Japan with them uh, for the, the World Cup, the rugby union World Cup, which is a brilliant experience as well. Yeah, great stuff. So you have a lot of background in many different i don't know if you want to call them systems philosophies just ways of thinking when it comes to sports medicine rehabilitation so maybe bring us through like some of the education that you've done and how you've kind of brought that together and synthesized it to kind of develop your own sort of um sports medicine sports rehabilitation system and no doubt this is um has led into what you're sort of passing on to the newer grads coming through now in sports medicine? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I'll, I'll always say to people, um, you know, I, I suppose at the backbone of everything is, is the thought process. And, and and this is, you know, this way of thinking, it's it's not for everybody. And, and I'm not trying to throw it down everyone's throats. If if, if people, you know, they, they, they want to look at it at the body as a whole and they, they want to, appreciate how the the respiratory and the neurology and the musculoskeletal all interact together that's great and then you've kind of got you know i've i've, I've had people have a go at me on, on twitter recently about you know because i've been using balloons and, and stuff like that and you've kind of got these people who you know you just look at you know you've got knee pain you look at the knee you know or you, or you, you might look at the hip or you might look at the ankle but you don't appreciate how the rib cage impacts the, the pelvis and i i get 
those people but i think the the physio profession it's not black or white it's it's a very much a gray area and and that's the i think that's where what i've tried to do is is take all the the different courses that i've done and some of those courses have been probably you know way too out there or, or maybe too left field if, if you want to call it that, and they're maybe getting a little bit carried away with what they're saying which is a shame because they're they're doing a lot of good things so what i've tried to do i think is is go okay why are they getting results and really just go you know what let's let's look at the evidence base and go well maybe they're getting to this because maybe they're getting that try not to get too carried away with it all and put it into a, a very very simple um system ultimately so you know, I've I've taken probably the the best bits of of various courses that I've done over the years, and you know, just tried to to structure it in a way along with my own thought process. Um, and I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, had a good few successes, and continually to refine it. And you know, we were talking thirty five years now since we last chatted, and you know, even back then, I look at what I was doing and, and how far we've come, and it, it all goes back to really. The, the more experience I get, the more simple I keep things, uh, you know, and I think I've complicated things a lot over the years. Um, and I look back now what I'm doing compared to then and, and I, you know, and, and everything now that I'm doing, it's very simplified, but I'd like to think there's a lot of substance behind what I'm doing and understanding what I'm doing rather than just taking an exercise, seeing it on YouTube or Twitter, Instagram, and then using that exercise Everything I'm doing now, I've, I think I've much deeper understanding of what I'm trying to achieve and, and what I'm expecting to, to see on the back of that exercise rather than um, I think in the past I would have used an exercise hope for the best. And, you know, there, there's like, oh, it's, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. Whereas I have a high level of confidence now at, at using the right exercise at the right time. And, and I think that's really what my mentorship is about is, is giving therapists the clarity on use this at the appropriate stage. Then you know, if they can do that, then the next logical step is to do that. But don't ever go to that before they, they can do that. And and for me, it's it's all about earning the right to progress. Um, and that's kind of the, the structure I've taken now, really. And 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 as I said, I think I think bringing things back to basics, but really having more of an understanding of of what we're doing and, and more importantly, why we're doing it. Yeah, great stuff. So if I was to pose the question to you, what is your system? from start to finish like what does that look like so in my mind i'm already thinking about you know what's your assessment system you know what's then like i suppose assessment drives everything really and then from there you know so it's just like an overarching question and we're sitting down on a plane sitting down on a plane i turn to you what do you do for a living and then you say well i'm a physio and then you go physio tell me more about that like what would your whole like and i want you to tell me as much detail as you can yeah, so, yeah, like, uh, I've got kind of, we, we call them the eight pillars, really, of, of our mentorship system, where, like, the subjective, the objective, the communication to the patient, designing the treatment plan, your low-level rehab, your high-level rehab, and your, your SNC, or your, your strength and conditioning. Now, the strength and conditioning, I, I like to, that pillar, I like to see strength and conditioning from an athlete, or resilience, you know, um, emotional resilience as well for, for your non-sporting patients, so it's not just strength and conditioning in, in the traditional terms so it all starts uh with us with the subjective so um what i kind of i split it into 80 percent of my attention is on what i think is driving the the pain experience and 20 percent of my attention in a session is on maybe the the site of the the pain for example so again i know you mentioned the tendinopathy so again 
you know, a simple uh, knee pain or, you know, if, if you had a knee tendon issue, I'd be like, okay, we need to spend 20% of our time. Let's get the, these symptoms settling down. And I suppose that's where I might use my traditional stuff. You might use your eccentrics, your isometrics, whatever you're, you're doing to, to get that, that symptoms to settle down. But what I'm trying to do in the subjective is go, right, what's in this patient's story that's maybe contributed or not doing enough work or not doing its job that may be caused potentially that knee joint or that tendon to become a bit grumpy in the first place. So I'm looking closely at the injury history, um, you know, what's in their story. Um, and again, you know, I, as I said to my mentioned people, there's always a reason if, if we ask higher quality questions, we're going to get higher quality answers. And, you know, if, if we have the confidence to dig enough and say, right, you know, what happened in the last six months before this pain came on, you know, and you really dig, there's usually something there, whether that's a previous injury or whether that's just their load spiked over something or, you know, or they, they were okay. And then all of a sudden, as I said, their, their, um, their, their load exceeded their capacity. And then that was the, the trigger. So again, with that, I'm, I'm bringing a, a working hypothesis, I suppose, to the, to the objective assessment. Then I've gone, okay, I've got an idea of their you know what i think is driving it and then it's it's having the discipline then to go into the objective which i think you'll see your toe touch your backward bend your side flexion your rotation you'll see influences of sfma there but you'll also see influences of gary gray's 3d movement stuff there so for me i'm like right what's what's happening here what's not happening um are they challenging their basis support if they're not challenging their basis support why not and it's like, okay, is, is there a protective tone there? Is there a perceived threat present within the system? And again, it, it's not going to be a perfect black or white, but it, it's a working hypothesis. And, and I'm just trying to link the, the subjective to the objective. Then we'll put them on the bed. We'll use our traditional passive assessments. Um, and then I'll use some kind of uh, muscle testing. But I like to use like a submaximal, I call it like coordinative testing or a low tolerance testing. So rather than just trying to isolate a muscle, I like to to build tension from the foot or hand because that's usually you know from my experience the the two places really where where our intent is is going to come from um so we'll do that and then ideally we'll we'll have um really by the end of the objective assessment we'll have obviously um some pretty blatant stuff going on as i call you know big elephants in the room that we want to address and then we'd like to think as well that we we'd have at the end of the assessment some idea of what's not doing its job which i would call the 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 80 really of right let's get the big elephants to settle down the symptoms to settle down but then let's also address what's not doing its job so when we get these symptoms to settle down and you get back on the field or you get back in, into everyday life that the what we think is the underlying drivers is it has been addressed so so that's what i'm trying to get out of the the objective assessment and and keep it really simple for the therapist and myself because if I can keep that simple, then what that allows me to do is have confidence when I'm communicating to the patient. That, that's really the, the next pillar is it's all well and good you knowing the problem and uh, the solution. But what really needs to happen is the patient needs to understand. And, and that probably hands down is the, is the biggest thing um, that you know, we've implemented in our own private practices. And, and that's, I suppose, where we've taken the pro sport approach and put it into private practice is, you know, what's the, the three big questions that a, um, a head coach is going to want to know from you from an injury and a player? It's, you know, what's the problem? And then if they're, um, they're, they're really cheeky, it's like, right, what, what caused it? Then how long are you going to be out for? And then what's the plan? You know, they're the, the three big 
big kind of questions, you know, three and a half questions you're going to get asked from every head coach kind of worth his or salt or, or butter. So it's trying to answer those three questions for the, for the patient so that you can set expectations and you can go, right, you know what? This is uh, what I think is the, the problem. This is the plan, which is the treatment plan. And this is realistically how long it's going to take. And I find if you can do that in the first session, now that's scary for a therapist to be able to do, to put yourself out there and say, I think this is going to take six weeks or I think it's going to take seven or eight sessions. But if you can justify and you can outline the treatment plan for the patient, then they can logically see how much work actually needs to, to go in to make sure they, they don't, um, you know, ultimately they don't break down again. Whereas I think what I've been guilty of in the past is, you know, a patient comes in and I want to be their best friend that I want to say, you know, your ego kicks in or you've been to John down the road. Oh, I'm going to fix this in two sessions for you. And I'm just so skeptical that these days because I've made all those mistakes and, you know, you, you think you're doing the patient a favor, but you're not because, they're, they're ultimately, yeah, you'll, you'll get short-term changes. The next time they go into a, a high threshold or a, a high stress situation, naturally they're probably going to revert back to the, the movement habits that you, know, that you haven't had time to, to develop with them. So, so nowadays I leave my ego at the door or I try to best I can and, and go, you know what, take the emotion out of it. Logically, this is, is what needs to happen. And, and as I said, you know, some patients, they're not happy with that. And it's like, well, you know, that's the plan, you know, you, you take it or like it or leave it. And, and if they don't like it, then they, they leave. And, and I'd rather that happen than be two, three sessions in and then be dealing with an unhappy patient who, you know, expects like they've had persistent pain for, for, um, for five or six years. And they think it's going to take two or three sessions because you were able to help their friend with acute low back pain or, or something like that. So um, I think it's important to, to set expectations. And that's kind of where the, the designing the treatment plan comes in with that kind of pillar. Um, and then you kind of go into, sorry, one of the pillars is hands-on treatment. Um, so we want to be able to use our hands responsibly, but effectively. Um, and not only that, then continue to, to keep those changes and make those changes with lower level rehab exercises that can also do the job of hands-on treatment. So, you know, I think the most dangerous number in, in business or, or physio is one. And that's where you've got one technique or you've got one exercise that you use with every patient because notoriously there's going to be a, a patient that doesn't respond to that technique or that exercise. You're like, shit, then what? So it's trying to get the, um, the, the thorough understanding of what we're trying to do with these exercises. And then ultimately it's just about taking them through a graded exposure. Um, so, you know, the, the graded exposure, that's, I suppose, where, where you'll see Franz Bosch's influence um, with some stuff nowadays with, you know, the co-contractions, You'll see PRI's influence in terms of the rib cage stuff. So what I like to do is I like to get, you know, my, my approach is, right, the rib cage, let's just get that rib cage, have an ability to depress, retract. Let's have a, an ability to elevate um, as well. Let's get it, uh, you know, when you side bend, let's get that rib cage elevated and depressing on, on either side. And let's get the thing moving. That's, that's probably as complicated as I keep the, the rib cage these days. And I, I think, you know, or in my earlier days, I was getting a little bit bogged down with it. Um, if you do that, you're going to get that diaphragm going through a full range of motion. You're going to get the, the pelvic floor to contract and relax. Great. You know, you're probably going to get all those internal organs to, to mobilize in between them. And, and that's really as, as complicated as I, I keep it. And then once you get all of that moving, then people are going to be able to relax a bit better. And then peripherally, then I like to get a good core contraction at the knee and the elbow. 
get good intent through the hand and the foot. And then that gives your glutes or your deltoids uh, an opportunity to do work. And then your rotator cuff's not going to be grumpy or, or your, your, your proximal hamstring maybe is, is, um, isn't going to be as, as, as grumpy. And once we have that, um, the, the key thing then is to keep that through the higher levels of loading. And I think that's the, the art of our profession is knowing when to progress the patient at the right times, when they're ready to run, when they're ready to go back training, when they're ready to, to go back gardening or, or whatever it is. And, and ultimately, it's, it's trying to take the emotion out of your decision making and say, right, well, have you done this, this and this? OK, yes, you have. Right. You should be ready to go back. And then obviously, when they get back running, you know, it's like everything you go back training, you need to follow that, that structured step-by-step system. So, so everything for me is, is just great at exposure. Um, you know, once, once we kind of get undo, if I had to say that, and I appreciate I've rambled on a lot here, if I had to put it in a nutshell, I think a lot of what my system is, is, is undoing the motor adaptations that probably happen as a result of, or because of pain and previous injuries, undoing all those, and then just take a patient through a graded exposure program. Um, I'd say that that's what I'm trying to achieve um, with the the eighty percent of of what I'm trying to do, and then the twenty percent is just take care of the, the symptoms using the the traditional approach. Just um, going, continue on there with what you said. You know, we're talking about rib cage, and then you know, getting co-contractions at the periphery. Would it be fair to say that um, a sort of premise you like to establish with people in rehabilitation is like central organization first and then proper co-contractions out to the periphery is that would that be sort of a way of looking at it good question and i i would have said yes to that probably a year or two years ago um nowadays what i'm big into is seeing what the patient needs to be able to do on a daily basis mm. so you might have two patients and uh even with back pain and one of them might need to go up and down the stairs throughout the day Whereas another one of them might need to be able to sit at a chair and, you know, at a desk for, for a long time. So if you're a back pain patient that needed to sit um, at a desk, I'd probably start with their rib cage. Whereas for the patient that wants to go up and down the, the stairs now, I'd maybe focus more so on, on the co-contraction mm. um, just to, to help them. Now, that's not going to be as clean cut as, you know, as it sounds. And what I would need to do there is use a lot of top-down cues where, you know, I might use that cue of, you know, every time you get up off the chair, squash an orange through your midfoot, or every time you get up, go up the stairs, squash an orange through your midfoot, to kind of facilitate the soleus and the hamstring to co-contract in the artificially, as I call it artificially, you know, without that thoughtless, fearless movement. So we can use cues in the short term to, to help the patient be successful. But ultimately, we know we want to come back round, and that all wants to happen outside of conscious control. So there, there's ways we can go about it. But I think these days, what I'd like to think where I'm getting a lot better and what I'm really preaching to the, to the mentorship uh, classes, you know, it all starts with what the patient needs to be able to do. And I, the phrase I'm, I'm using these days is six hours versus six reps. So what does the patient need to be able to do for six hours a day rather than six reps? And then that really helps me focus and guide me onto what we should be prescribing first up really rather than you know just going straight to our, our favorite exercises and it's the ability to i think go up and down the, the great exposure uh ladder you know and ultimately deciding where we start with the patient that ultimately depends on what they need to be able to do for you know for prolonged periods throughout the day to try really get them get them some success in and uh, and some wins in the first couple of sessions and i think that's really important as well that we get the 
they, they can see the changes and they can see the progress because that's going to be important to buy in and, and patient adherence as well, you know. Yeah, great stuff. Just a, a, this is a question just on my part. Maybe it's a little bit of devil's advocate too, but I actually just genuinely want to get your thoughts too. Like, you know, when we say things like, you know, we're going to get the ribs down and that's going to, you know, make the pelvic floor and the diaphragm line up and work properly. And it's going to do this to like the visceral organs. How do we really know that's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the the terminology there. I think you need to be careful with with like. Well, certainly, I wouldn't like to be associated with it saying we need to get everything aligned to to work perfectly. But I think you know, if you depress the rib cage, the diaphragm is going to mobilize under the um, under the rib cage just through through to the attachments. So again, a lot of this stuff is is basic anatomy, really. So. If you depress the rib cage, your diaphragm has to dome under it. And again, you know, there's ultrasound and, and various other things that that's going to show that. There's studies that show that, you know, the, the diaphragm and the pelvic floor, they're going to move together. So again, um, what the diaphragm does, the, the pelvic floor will do the opposite. So there's a lot of studies out there showing, you know, this stuff is moving as, as well as the visual organs. I think where we need to be careful is saying maybe, and again, it's, Maybe, you know, not necessarily what you said there, but people get lazy when they say, you know, for this, we, we need to get everything aligned to, to, to move perfectly because there's never going to be a situation in real life, like just like you're leaning there, Robbie, your diaphragm is like one side of your diaphragm is stretching, the other side is shortening. And probably something like that will be happening with the, the pelvis as well. And, and that's where I don't think you're never going to have this perfect scenario where you're going to be, in a perfect position in a game of sport or in life where everything's going to stack up and, and, and that's what, that's what's going to happen. So for me now, it's like, right, let's give the rib cage an ability to go through depression retraction, get the ribs down. But for me, a lot of my patients, we need to get the ribs up. So we need the, the rib cage to actually be able to elevate. So a lot of your facet joints problems and your, your patients that, um, you know, I, I see a lot of uh, females as well, rudders, but pelvic floor issues. We need that, that rib cage to, to go the other way as well. Um, and, you know, I was definitely one that I've spent too much time worrying about ribs down in the past. Now it's just right, let's just get the thing going through a full range of motion. And it's the exact same as, you know, you had a, a knee or a hip, you know, and, and that person doesn't have full range of motion there. As a body worker, you're probably going to go, okay, let's, let's try to get that full range of motion back and then see what's, see what's left over. And, and it's the exact same with the rib cage. You know, it's um, the, the, there's joints there. They want to be able to move the muscles. They want to be able to go through that, that range. And obviously that's pretty important for uh, the respiratory system as well. So, you know, for me, it's like, yeah, let's not get carried away and, and talk about perfect movement. Let's just treat the rib cage like, like other um, areas of the body. Let's get that range of motion and then get low tolerance through it rather than worrying about, you know, having this perfect alignment of the pelvic floor and diaphragm and, you know, if you don't have that when you lift your kids up, you know, you're, you're going to fall apart, all, all of that kind of crap. I, I wouldn't agree with any of that, but I think just get the full range of motion and, um, you know, and I think that the nervous system will self-organize on, on the back of that. I don't know, does that answer your question or not? No, no, it does to, no, it does to a degree. And I concur, like there's no such thing as, as perfect movement. I was just more along the lines of, you kind of did answer because you said there's studies out there and no doubt like people can go and they can search for the studies. It's just like, you know, I think, again, maybe it's laziness or maybe it's just it becomes so habitual that people don't get questioned on it. And I'm not saying this towards you. I'm just like, 
when people say things with such certainty, like, well, we know that when we put this joint in this position, this happens at this muscle. And it's like, but we don't know that. Someone has said it for like yeah. 50, 50 years and we just yeah, have said, yeah. oh, that definitely I, I, yeah, happens. I, I think, I, I, I think... I, sorry, just, just, just for your answer, Dave, I, I, I have, yeah. no, I have no problem saying that, well, based off anatomy, we infer this is what happens if you yeah, put the diaphragm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And again, it's not, it's not a go at you. Like it's, that could, be like, oh, in, I know, I know that could be like in nutrition or circadian biology when people are always like, well, when the blue spectrum's up, we know that this definitely happens at the penile gland. And it's like, well, even though I suppose blue light exposure and, and, and suppression melatonin is pretty well established, it seems to be in the literature. But you know what I mean? It could be nutrition. It could be something in strength and conditioning. I'm just using the diaphragm example here in, in our conversation. Yeah, I think I think it's a good point, and then but I think you can go too far the other way then as well. Like there was a yeah. guy he asked me, uh, like he couldn't. I think it was on YouTube, and again, I like this is the problem with with online stuff is you don't know what what people's their intentions are. And it was like you know one of my posts was saying, well, you know if the um, if you don't have much intention to midfoot, you're not going to go core contraction of the knee. That knee could extend quite quickly, so then your VL is is going to essentially work as your hip extensor. And the guy couldn't get his head round that how can the VL contribute towards hip extension um, without it attaching? And it was like, show me a study for that. Mm. I was like, well, you know, stand with 45 degrees uh, knee bend and snap your knees back. You know, did you extend your, your hip there or did you extend your knee? What happened to the femur? So I think you kind of... It, it's a very very hard one and I think there's there needs to be a little bit of common sense but also I think you can go too far the other way where people are saying well unless there's a you know a, a systematic review I'm not accepting accepting this and, and I think it's that's what what I mean with the gray area is I think we're, we're right to question stuff I think how we question it is is probably a, a whole different topic for another day but I think it's, it's really yeah I, I agree with what you're saying is don't take things for granted, but, you know, question it, but still question it respectfully. Yeah, exactly. Don't get bogged down in the weeds either. Like at the end of the day, it's all about results. And even if there was a systematic review, like science is so biased and flawed as it is. It's one thing I really appreciate coming out of my masters at Mary's, which I just finished. And like, I've been around people conducting research and like, it's like, like, you kind of go to this, well, I did anyway, you know, you're an early young coach in, in like in my case, it was strength and conditioning, but maybe it's the same too with the likes of sports rehabilitation professionals like physios, etc. But you kind of get into the profession first and you're not mad into research. And then, you know, then you get mad into the research and everything has to be researched. And then you kind of get to the other side of that bridge and like, have you actually seen research in real life? It's messy and like it's sloppy and it's object and it's not objective. It's so subjective and you're just... And then, like, the instant thought that came to my head and I seen, like, research being done is, like, this is what people hang their jackets on. Like, yeah, this I, is what I, people hang their yeah. arguments on. And it's, like, like, even if there was a study that said that, how do you even know that study is honestly telling the 100% true? Because so many studies have so many holes in them. Like, Yeah, and I, I think that it's it's such a good point. And that, I think that's what frustrates me, really, is, as you said, is people are hanging their hats on on certain stuff. and I, And I completely, you know... We, we, I think we have a great responsibility with, you know, it is all about getting results, but I think we have a great responsibility with what we're telling our patients, what we're, why we think things are happening. And again, like I, I can see, like, I suppose if you want to call it the far right group in, in our, my, my profession, where it's like, you know, you, you need all of this stuff. And, and, and I can see their frustration, 
but at the same time, I think you know you it, it isn't as as black and white as as it seems that there is that gray area. And my big area of interest is is motor adaptations to pain or you know a, a noxious stimulus, and and that's what what um, I'm really cautious at when I see you know you have two people with the you know, they, they get the same um, input, if you, if you sort of, so to speak, and they, they're going to react completely different. And that makes sense because everyone's going to have different previous injuries. Everyone's going to have different upbringings, beliefs, you know, the, this whole host of things that impact pain. Then, you know, how can you say just because this study showed this, that your patient in front of you is going to react like that? And, and that's where, as I said, you, you know, you, you, you can easily get overwhelmed and go, shit, well, where do I go next? Or you can go, right, let's just keep it simple. Let's, you know, what I do is just have, let's have a working hypothesis. And if this doesn't work, that's fine. Because we, we can have this, this, and this to, um, to use to get us from A to B. And I think once you have that clarity of where you're going, then you're not hanging your, your hat on, a, on an eccentric, on an isometric, on something. You've got, you've got to go, okay, this is where we're at. This is where I'm trying to get my patient to. And it's, you know, you, you've got options there to, to get them there. And I think that's important as well that, as I said, the, the most dangerous number is one, really, where you're, you're relying on one thing to work, whether it's a hands-on technique or, or something like that, you know? Yeah, it's an art and a science. Come here, how, how much, if, if at all, um, how important would something like Newell's um, constraints model play in your rehabilitation system? So, you know, appreciating environment, task, and organism, is, is that... Do you utilize that sort of framework when you're kind of in a return to play or helping someone um, in that later stage of rehab? Uh, can you give me an example of that just so I'm clear on what, what you're asking? So, you know, for skill acquisition purposes, you know, so they say for skill ac, the three main things you're always considering. Because I just assume, oh, I made an assumption there that you'd be up to because you know, you've dealt a lot with Franz and Franz talks about it too. Like, So, you know, if you want to really sort of... Um, if you really want to enhance skill acquisition, the three areas you want to manipulate are, uh, well, sorry, the three areas that are involved are organism, environment, and task. And the two areas you really want to manipulate are environment and task because you can't really manipulate too much in the organism because the organism comes down to structural and f- functional constraints. Now, you could change functional constraints because that could be like thoughts or like a neurological output, but functional would be like, you know, bone and ankle mobility and stuff and someone. But envi- you can manipulate, obviously, an environment the task is done in, and then obviously the constraints of a task. Like, you know, you can't, if it was like small-sided games, like in GA, like no hand passing allowed or no solo, yeah. you know what I mean? Just an example. If it was a stroke patient, you'd be like, you can't use your good side. You have to use your, your affected side, that kind of way. Yeah, so we, at the start of... Um, at the start of my rehab program, I like to, so let's say for example, again, you can stop me half a if I'm not answering your question right. If, um, if I think, for instance, that the, the patient doesn't want to, to load their, their cilius, for example, or their, their ankle, that they, they have a previous ankle injury, there's not much intent going through that foot. What I might do is I might put them on their midfoot, and then what I'll do is I'll get them to relax their neck and slouch, Okay, so when they slouch and, and they essentially go floppy um, to the rib cage, that's obviously then going to take a lot of work off their, their lower back. So what we'll see then is, okay, you're either going to fall over or you're going to have to plant the flex a little bit more. Or if I want them to do a little bit less through the, the ankle, then I might get them to extend their neck at a, a pro chest so they'll, they'll take some. 
some work through the through the lower back if that makes sense so i'll use things like that at the start but what i like to do then is i'll really for me then as we get to the high end of the rehab it's about speed of movement so i think the the speed of the movement is very very important especially with um athletes in, in the past have been burnt by this where i haven't allowed them to express their um their body weight through a full range of motion at the appropriate speed so example of groin pain is a classic where the athlete they they plant their foot they pivot the twist and their their groin grabs for for want of a better word so what i might do with, with someone like that is we we get to the back end of the rehab program i might start if i don't think they're taking load well through whatever x y or z in the start i might use something like the slouches but that'll be in a very much slow control manner as we get to the high end kind of of the rehab then i'm really manipulating the the speed of movement but i'm not too worried then about getting the load through the um just through the the soleus. i want everything to do its job so i suppose i try to i put them in a position at the start where we go right i want this to do a lot more work that i don't think is doing enough work at the start almost over bias it and then as we get back to the um the high-end rehab then or, or back towards getting closer to games i want everything just to, to do its job again so you know that that's kind of i don't know if i've explained that very well that's kind of my uh, my approach with it in terms of um you know using the um kind of the sandbags and, and and stuff like that like france uses uh i'm not massive in, in, into stuff like that i think the how I, what I want to do, and I suppose my philosophy is I want to really challenge their base of support. And again, I don't know, we get into the same thing here, but you know, I'll do a lot of hops. And then I suppose that's where you'll see Gary Gray's influence come into my program, where I'll use a hand driver, whereas your foot's just about to hit the floor, not after, but as your foot's about to hit the floor, I'll get you to reach in a certain direction, which will ultimately want to challenge your base of support then. Um, so I think I like that stuff because I think it's easy. Um, I think it's easy to regress or progress somebody on the back of, you know, something like a leap or a hop or a, um, a lunge or whatever like that. Um, if you do it well, so I'm probably more, I appreciate the co-contraction stuff and I probably use that more. I've kind of modified it a lot. So like a lot of that stuff as well, like Peter O'Sullivan, the, the back pain, uh, physio in, in Australia, a lot of his stuff would have influenced me. So I've almost mute, um, morphed a lot of his stuff with a lot of Franz Bosch's kind of concepts in the early doors, but the back end of my rehab, it's more probably your Gary Gray type stuff and, and really challenging basis supports that way. Without so the probably, with Gary Gray, without all the religious stuff though, I think. No, maybe not that stuff. Again, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say, I, and again, it's like, it's just, just keep it simple, you know, like, and, um, and, don't don't get too carried away, um, and just <laughs> you know, just just you know, once once you understand what you're trying to do, and I think I like that stuff because you're going to create a lot of perturbations, you know, and and that for me is is what's really important. And I think, you know, my understanding of this stuff is if we create a perturbation, you're going to influence the peripheral tissue to the spinal cord level a lot, and that's going to give you an opportunity to work those tissues outside a higher center control. Whereas at the start of my rehab, where I'm getting you to slouch and I'm getting your weight over your midfoot, and I'm telling you squash an orange through your midfoot, there's a lot of top-down drivers there. There's a lot of um, you know higher center um, involvement. But ultimately, when I get you back up, when you're about to go back on the field, I don't want too much higher center involvement. I want you concentrating on the ball 
while all of these tissues are are um, are being able to communicate. So so I think that's probably where you know a lot of Franz Bosch's stuff. I I think that stuff needs to be respected. I think it's very very high level, and I I think the vast majority of rugby league rugby union players that I've worked with they're not ready for that stuff. That the vast majority will do them exercises and they'll come into me that night with a sore back, mm. you know, or they they'll their lumbar spine because they'll they'll find a way to achieve the task, but they'll they'll extend through their their lumbar spine. They'll they'll lock out to try create stability, and then they're coming into the physios that evening with a with a sore back. So. You know, we we'll we'll take we've got a great relationship with the SNC um at England, but rugby league, rugby union, but you know, you, you take the piss out of them. The SNC think they're great during the day and then we're trying to fix them and put out the fires uh by, by night, you know, with some of them now. As I said, luckily the environments I work in now we all appreciate where, where the athletes are and work well together. But I think that's where we need to be careful with, with some of those exercises. They they really need to be able to um, earned the right to, to be able to do some of them exercises because they're, they're tough and um, you know they, I've seen the other side of it as well Squash and Orange Colin Griffin at the Sanctuary Sports Clinic is smiling Yeah that, that, that's where I um, where I said you know I, I've said this on a few times that, that's where I heard it years ago I think Colin done a podcast for me and Colin, Colin was using that I think he was telling me when he was you getting his runners to, to Squash and Orange um, I think that's where I picked up that cue years ago and I, I, it just stuck with me and you know I'll, I remember doing um, a return to play course in Connacht Rugby and uh, we were half pissed up on the barn uh, in between day one and day two and, and uh, we said right we're going to call them Mansion Oranges for the for the second day because they're all taking a piss about the orange and uh, we, I squashed the Mandarin or something like that just to, to change it up a little yeah, bit but yeah, it's, yeah. it's just stuck and um, it's, it's a good cue it, it gets the job done um i probably you know with with colin stuff and with, with respect to colin i probably don't like at that stage uh like colin originally told it to me about squashing orange when you're running at that stage of the rehab i probably wouldn't be too keen for my athletes to be squashing oranges now mm. um i'd like all of that stuff i think that cues up unbelievable at the start of the rehab program but by the time they get to the the kind of the, the high-end rehab then in the back running I want them kind of more focusing on like, and I, maybe that's where you're going with your question. If, if I'm understanding right, more focusing on the ball or, yeah, you know, yeah. e- external stimuli rather than having to think about, about it. I think for, for distance runners and stuff, it might, might be all right. But, uh, but for sports athletes, obviously they, they're not going to have, our field athletes are not going to have the time to, to think about squashing oranges. Yeah. Just for the listeners, we're referring to uh, Colin Griffin, who is he still at the uh, sports surgery clinic? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I've so, uh, spoke to him in years. To be fair, now. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, just for listeners, that's um, the sports surgery clinic is based in Santry Dublin. That's one of the top rehabilitation centres in Europe, if not probably the world. It's it's up there anyway, in terms of facilities and 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 the staff that they get going through there. Um, ACLs and hamstrings they are huge at the moment. So. I don't know if you could maybe give us a case study or even just initially maybe start off with your thoughts or what are your, your current thoughts on, you know, ACL and hamstring. And the only reason I picked those is again, because they're just, they're just so prevalent within sports. Um, well, have, have, has anything changed in the way you, you think about ACLs or hamstrings and you can approach that whatever way you want in terms of which one you want to pick first. So maybe just like your thoughts on it and then, you know, I suppose maybe some general concepts of rehab because, again, just because two athletes have an ACL or two athletes have a hamstring doesn't mean you'll, you'll treat them the same way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. 
I don't partic- particularly think I have a strong opinion about about any you know beliefs about ACLs and 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 stuff like that. I think the 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 my thought process these days is I'm I'm respecting the Salias a lot more. Um, I think the the intent for the midfoot's pretty important. And I know like the likes of um of Seth O'Neill are are doing some really good research on on the Salias now. Mm. Um, I think Colin might might have done a, a presentation on that recently as well. But the from my understanding, you know. Something as simple as you know, you you sit there, you know, sit sit upright ninety degrees, and you let your knee wiggle. You know, your knee go into valgus. Whereas if you have good intent your midfoot in the sagittal plane, and you squash an orange, and then you let your knee go in, your medial hamstring is going to kick in there um, as well as your your soleus. So, I think um, for me, I've got a phrase now that I'm using, um, and I was doing a, a presentation in. Um, for uh, it's reform or move something um, in Australia, and I, and I used this thing, and I've just kept using it. Is the Celius is the wife, the hamstring are the kids, and the glutes the husband. And I took the piss and I said, you know, if my wife and my kids aren't happy, I'm never going to be happy. So I think the the Celius is really important to have good intent through that midfoot in the sagittal plane to ultimately control the, the other planes. Whereas I think, you know, if we start looking at transverse planes too early, you really need to, you need to nail the sagittal plane. And I think we can go too far the other way now where, you know, maybe the 3D guys, Gary Gray guys are like all about 3D planes. And I think that's fine. But I think, you know, let's get the basics right as well. And that intent of, you know, having good foot contacts and, and good intention at midfoot and getting that soleus um to to um to do its job that's obviously going to be pretty important with where the where it inserts and that's going to be um you know it's going to work with the hamstrings to uh to control that tibia so it's uh it's it's something that i i get a pay a lot of attention to these days and i think the medial hamstrings you know if i had to pick probably um you know, two muscles where that I could train to to help an ACL. I think it'd be soleus and it'd be the medial hamstrings. You know, rather than the the glute nowadays. You know, my understanding of the functional anatomy. You look at the tendons. You know, the medial hamstrings, big long tendons. You know, elastic energy. You know, transferring energy and 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 stuff like that. I, I think they're pretty important to take to take force away from the the knee. Um, and especially when that knee goes into into that valgus, there, you know, you you want that medial hamstring and, and that soleus to uh, to to do their job, and then ultimately, you know, the obviously I'm not saying for a second that the the, the lateral hip isn't important, but I just don't think it's is as important as maybe uh, some are, are are making it out to be. I think there's a lot of other things that that need to be in place. So I think. With ACLs, I, I want to make sure that that soleus is, is doing its job, that the medial hamstrings can actually tolerate load. And, mm. you know, the medial hamstrings, they're, they're uh, muscles that, you know, when I, I've got a, a hamstring load tolerance test, I, I call it a, a simple dirty test where you do a little bit of a glute bridge, um, but you only let your bone come off the, the ground an inch, get the weight off the heel onto the midfoot. And, you know, a lot of athletes, either their soleus will cramp or their, their hamstrings will cramp. So for me, I want like, that to me is, is a protective response from the nervous system. So I want those tissues to be able to work under isometric conditions 
um, with that particular test. And there's a lot of load going through soleus and there's a lot of load going through hamstrings there. And if we get them to, to tolerate that load, then you'll start to feel your glutes kicking in. Um, <clears throat> so that's maybe one test that, that nowadays with an ACL, I want to make sure they can, they can pass before we, we worry about too much of the, the, the standing exercises. Um, so I, I think that's probably the, the biggest thing that, um, that I've probably appreciated nowadays than earlier in my career. I would have gone more to, I would have known the hamstrings were important for an ACL. I think everyone knows that, but I, I probably didn't appreciate the link between how the hamstring, the soleus and the glutes, they all have to work together you know, when that foot hits the floor and then you kind of go into your Gary Gray type stuff where you're, you're challenging your base of support. What's the impact as the soleus is lengthening, your medial hamstrings are going to have to kick in. You know, and again, we can see that when your MCL is valgus or you get a valgus, your MCL is, is stimulated, your, your, your hamstrings will get that reflexive uh, contraction as well. So, you know, there's, there's literature out there showing that. So um, I think understanding why all that stuff happened, I think I'm getting a bit clearer in my mind now with that and, and how we might program um, athletes with, with ACL injuries. But I think it's, it, you know, for me, you know, we, we've just gone through uh, module uh, nine in the mentorship and that's kind of where I started going to pathologies and um, our particular pathologies and whether it's a hamstring injury or whether it's a quad tear or an ACL, it's just the case really of, of earning the right to go through the, the graded exposure. Um, and for me, when that foot hits the floor, you want the calf, the gastro, you know, soleus, you want the hamstrings, you want the quads, you want the, the, the glutes to all do their job, you know, and, and I think it's our profession, it's, it's gone probably too far isolating muscles and, mm. and trying to strengthen muscles in isolation, you know, and, and a lot of therapists will, will do bridges trying to get the hamstrings to quieten, you know, and, and, you know, that to me just does not make sense. Yeah. It's like, you know, your, your hamstring is very, very important to, to help your hip be successful. And I think a lot of people, they don't tolerate load well through their hamstrings, you know, the, which is why in that hamstring load tolerance test, as I call it, they, they cramp. Um, so, yeah, just getting everything to, uh, working together and just having that clear understanding of, of where we're going with, with our structure and our, our system. And I think if you have some kind of structure there, then it's like, right, this is where I need to get to. Let's just earn the right to, to get there. And I, I, you know, I treat an ACL now as, as I would um, an MCL or, or, you know, a different injury. It's just like, right, you need to be able to do all these things and let's just see what, what you can't do and, and build you back up. Yeah, great stuff. And just before we maybe get into a little more specific on hamstring then, just with regards to like all this, you know, we're nearly talking about like the, symph- the, the symphony or not sy- symphony. That's the word we're up. We're talking about the symphony of like all these co-contractions that happen in around the knee, which kind of which concurs with your point that why would you want to silence the hamstring when it all works together? But just a a, a point Franz made, Franz Bosch that is made at a, a seminar, and um, I'd be interested to get your thoughts too. Is that's and I asked him to clarify to make sure that I was interpreting what he was saying correctly, and um, that this is why he is against excessive strength training when an athlete has gained a competent level of strength and hypertrophy work because he believes that the co-contractions from the heavy strength work and even hypertrophy work it actually interferes with the co-contractions that are more specific to the sport and he believes that that's a pro that that, that's a mechanism that that leads to these like injuries within the game like non-contact acls because the co-contraction mechanism isn't, isn't it isn't working properly essentially like all that all that general non-specific training is interfering with you know more ideal co-contractions in the sport that's sort of his hypothesis It'd be interesting to hear what you think about that 
Yeah, I think uh, I probably don't have a strong enough opinion to say, yeah, that's causing these injuries. Um, but I, I've definitely seen in the past when I rehab athletes, um, and, and that's kind of what I was alluding to with the speed of movement, is mm. when you get them to speed up the movement, they lose that ability to to co-contract at the knee, where you'll just see that knee snapping back quite um, quite quickly. So I, I've seen examples of that. Um, and again, I, you know, I wouldn't say I understand it 100%, but I've definitely seen how when you ask them to do something you know, with a little bit slower movement, they can do it. Then you ask them to speed it up and they just go right back to these old movement habits. Um, so I think that's where then, you know, you, you really need to take them through these um, these progressions where they can actually do this stuff, not just in a nice controlled manner, but they can do it. Um, they can do it um, at speed. And again, maybe that to go back to your original question, that's where, you know, just to give you the practical example, now that I kind of, I probably understand your question a bit better is, you know, if you're the guy who's not maybe co-contracting well enough, um, you know, at the knee, or let's say, let's keep it a simple, another way, they're not using maybe enough um, horizontal uh, ground reaction forces rather than um, vertical, that's where maybe placing the box a little bit further out might be a little bit better. Whereas if you put the box too close to the athlete, then he's going to have no choice but to go to, uh, he's going to have to go straight up rather than out. So that's where you're going to see you know, him snap his knee back, but actually he doesn't have any choice there. He has to, he has to do that to get up. Mm. So I think that there's ways you, you can play around with that um, as well with, you know, with these kind of, um, you know, RDLs into these, these kind of, what, what would you call them, step-ups or, or whatever they, they, they call them these days. Um, so so that there's ways you, you can do that. Um, but I suppose my, my philosophy is I, I would agree with him a bit um there with what he's saying i probably wouldn't be comfortable enough to say it's definitely causing these injuries uh, it, you know um, he, i'm not i don't want to misquote him now he wasn't like saying yeah. this is definitely no one was saying definitely it's just that it's again it's more like mechanistically is is there a mechanism there that that is plausible yes could this be contributing yes is it definitely the yeah. case no he wasn't coming out as he, strong as that yeah my my kind of uh, where my head's at with all this robbie is i take that we need to be looking and we need to get better at assessing a sub-maximal uh, contractions because I think that's where, like, you know, on the bed, I'll use, like, a like what I call, again, like, the fucking far-right physios will be will have a feel out with me here, but, you know, like, almost muscle testing at, like, 40, 50% of your, your perceived max. And, you know, to just to, to put some load through the tissues and see how the nervous system responds there and, and that's a lot harder for an athlete to match my pressure. And you, you need to give them a few seconds, but that's a lot harder than it is for someone to produce, or there's a lot more skill involved there, I should say, than just to put a maximal contraction and, you know, whack up against me. It's like, right, just hold that pressure there, hold it, hold it, hold it. And then I might, you know, change my pressure and they have to match that and adjust that. There, there's a lot more skill involved there than, than a maximal contraction. And I think, the you know even the the jump tests and stuff like that where we have to um, you know produce force but not produce maximal force I think all of those tests are really useful um, with with ACLs and, and returning and it's more the submaximal uh, control rather than the maximal control I, I think is important and I think sometimes in the gym we fall in love with these you know these power output tests and and, and various other tests we do but I think it's important to you know, to, to have a look at maybe sub-maximal uh, tests as well and, and see what they're like because there's a lot of decision-making happening 
you know, when we um, when we do that and and they, they kind of have to, you know, probably what he says, self-organize to to um, to um, to to do that movement task. Just on the back there of your point on muscle tests, and I, I remember I asked this question to Bill Hartman. And I've asked it to a to a number of um, therapists and rehabilitation specialists because just even like because I've done manual therapy, I've done physical therapy, I've done under shadow and all that. And I, I've always had this sort of it's it's obviously just a bias I have, but I always have an issue with table tests, and the reason is that like how much can we infer from a table test and actually carries over to when you're standing vertical against gravity and moving at like different speeds. You know, like the classic one was, I remember we were just, you know, doing the classic glute, uh, you know, opposite side lumbar extensors, hamstring firing pattern. I had to go in this sequence and I was like, but how do you know, like that's what happens when they're standing and when like they're either jogging, walking, jogging, sprinting, changing direction, just like, Ooh, this is your problem. I'm just like, you're in a horizontal position where gravity is not affecting the system and and if it is nowhere to the same extent it is when it's vertical and all your sensory inputs different everything is different also too the environment in a whole classroom people are like looking at you whereas like you know if you're out in a field you're you know it's all subconscious you're not thinking there's gravitational forces you're doing a skilled task it's just like so even like as a young therapist like i was like this just doesn't seem to make sense to me i I could never get over table tests now i can understand table tests when you're going for ranges of motion and bony end fields but i can never understand like muscle firing patterns or and i'm still i haven't done enough muscle testing so i can't say but i always think anytime i've been to like a seminar i'm just so i'm just so skeptical like everyone goes you know push okay now smell my arse or i push again see the difference it's like no i don't you just you just clearly like didn't put as much pressure on that time yeah yeah um no i i get that and it probably frustrates me as well a little bit that that stuff but i think like how i use it is basically i've got a person here i want them to perform a task at 40 50 percent so we're not particularly looking for any like firing pattern or i want your hamstrings to contract before you glute or anything like that i want you to hold your limb there and i i just want gonna go right i'm just gonna apply some pressure and what I'm really looking for here is can these muscles work under isometric conditions? Mm. That's that's ultimately what I'm trying to do. But I completely agree. We cannot say that just because you can't do this, that it means when you go to standing, it's it's going to be the same. And I think that's where you, you have to be very careful with this stuff. And, and how I use it is it's almost the final piece of the assessment. I think anyone that uses it as this is your assessment and, and that's it. I think you're leaving yourself open there a little bit to to maybe um, a whole host of things. And you know, I, I think the the problem with the nervous system, as you said, there is you can you can distract the nervous system. You can you can do a whole host of things to to get different results. And I think that's where this stuff it's got 100% got limitations. But you just do your best to you know to to address those. And for me, it's like right, let's just get some load going through this. So when I get someone, you know, you're you're lying on your back, you've got a 45 degree knee bend. I'm saying to you, right, squash an arch through your midfoot. I'm going to lift your leg up. I want, all I'm looking for there is, do you have intent of pushing, plantar flexing? Can you keep a core contraction at the knee? Can you hip extend at 40? Because if I go to 100% there, of course, I'm probably going to be able to lift your leg off the, the, the bed. The levers are against you there. So it's, you know, it's, it's taking this stuff, using it in a way that's of use to you, 
without, you know, as I said, it's, it's, it's finding that middle ground without going too far the other way and then getting hyped into all this, oh, you know, watch this, watch that. And I've been on those courses. I've paid a lot of money for those courses and it, it's really frustrated me. So I think I see value in checking, can we work on rhizometric conditions? But I'm very careful not to make the assumption that just because you can means you're going to be able to do it in standing or vice versa. So I think there's a lot of useful information we can get from it, but we don't want to go too far the, the other way as well and, and get carried away, which I think is, is the experiences that, that you have so, or you've had from the sounds of it. So I think it's just taking the good bits without getting you know, too, uh, too, uh, too bogged down or, or, or too the other way. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you like for time there, Dave? I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, yeah, I've got about ten minutes, Matt. Perfect. Um, listen, hamstring could be a whole ball park or a whole podcast in itself, or a whole can of worms. What I'm going to say there, a whole episode in itself. So, just to to wrap up then for the last ten, um, is there is there anything? So I'm going I'm going to skip hamstrings for now because it's probably a conversation we can have another time because it's such a big area. But is there anything currently on your radar? that you think you know has a lot of merit or that has kind of caught your eye or that you're interested to see how it may evolve within the sports medicine field in the coming years um good question uh in the sports medicine field um specifically to that i think the um i think the biopsychosocial approach is going to be a lot Mm. lot um bigger um i think it's getting there and i think as therapists, where we're getting better at it. Um, I, when I say getting better at it, I mean appreciating and, and starting to get aware of when, you know, for example, a World Cup final week, an athlete comes in absolutely fine for, you know, eight weeks in camp, and all of a sudden his his old groin is getting a bit grumbly again. You know, the, these kind of presentations. So I think as therapists, certainly I'm noticing, not necessarily with, with, with that, you know, I'm just giving an example there of, you know, probably oversimplifying everything, but I think as therapists, as, as sports therapists or sports physios, I think we're definitely getting more aware of the, um, the, the impact of, of not just physical drivers. Um, and I think doctors are getting better at that as well. Um, and I think we're, we're um, you know, and I suppose that's where I think the, the breeding stuff is, is very useful in terms of, you know, having a, a nice thing that they can do to to switch off or to dampen down the nervous system or, or to give them something that they can go away and take and, um, you know, use in a very simple manner. And I think the sports psychologists that I've worked with in the past as well, they'll all use these kind of tools um, with the with the athletes as well or give them something like that. So I think the, the role between the doctor, the physio, the psychologist and, and appreciating that actually an injury mightn't just be a physical driver to it. I think that's a bit that, that I, I think is got a, has got a lot better, certainly since I started 10, 12 years ago. And I think it's, uh, it's developing. So I think that's probably the, it's not the sexiest answer in the world, but it's, it's something that, that I'm noticing a lot more. But again, maybe I'm biased because I'm, you know, I, I look at the body this way, and, but I, I think other therapists and other doctors are, are you know, for, from that I've been around are starting to, to appreciate that as well. And, um, and, and we're getting better at, at dealing with these athletes and looking at them as a person rather than just, uh, you know, just, uh, just an injury. I know a question I could ask, and it's probably like it's a bit of a – wouldn't be a great question. Like, you know, the question would be like, you know, what are your top courses? And, you know, you'd be like, well, you know, it depends and who you are and where you're in your career, blah, blah, blah. 
But let's just hypothetically say I am a young, you know, fresh grad out of college. Do you have any sort of top resources where they are courses or even if it's like reading material or online material? Now, obviously, like your own mentorship is is a phenomenal resource because, again, you've gleaned so much information from so many resources and really synthesized it into a beautiful model. But for you personally, too, like, was there any specific educational resources that really you found um, had a big return on investment that you would think would be great for a new grad coming out of college? Yeah, it's it's a funny one because, like, when when you look back at it, the likes of like Shirley Sharman and 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 all these like her books like were massive for me in in, in really making me appreciate that there might it mightn't just be a case of. Um, you know, of, okay, this is the, the side of pain and we just need to look at that. But I think when I look at her books now, I'm like, shit, you know, some of that stuff a bit like, you know, the glutes firing before the hamstrings and, and all that stuff. I, I think there, there's limitations to that stuff. So I think you need to be careful. You know, you, you go through these phrases and you have to make mistakes. And that, that's the, like, that's the issue. Like I was saying to these, as I call them now, the far right physios, the, the Twitter gurus, I was, you have to go through these mistakes and, if someone posts something on, on Twitter or Facebook, you know, that's probably what they believe at that time. And, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll learn from that. So to go back and answer your question, you know, I think I'm glad I went through that stuff without getting bogged down. So I think I need to be careful on what I say, go and, and read, but I think a solid one would be um, Louis Gifford's aches and pains. Oh. So he's got, got three s- series there. And I think I wish I, I do. And I don't, I don't wish I, I got them sooner because I'm glad I went through the Charmin stuff and, and all the other stuff and then get, got his stuff and then go, okay, maybe I'm getting a bit carried away with stuff. So, you know, it, it's a hard, that's a very hard question to, to answer actually now that, now that you've asked me that because mm-hmm. I, I think I'm glad I went through it all but then come across someone like him who just simplifies everything. So I think his stuff's definitely really, really good um, in terms of, um, of understanding pain at, at a very simple level. Like he was a big inspiration for, for me writing my books in terms of I didn't want to write a book that was a big textbook and, and it was, you know, hard to, to consume. Like my books that I write, whether it's my back pain one for my patients or, you know, the, the go-to physio, which I outlined the, um, the, the step-by-step system or the injury prevention one, I write them now so that the therapist can, I'm talking to the therapist and they can kind of, they can understand it. And that's kind of how he, he write, wrote his books. Um, so I think that's that's a really good resource. Um, what else? But I mean, the big thing I say, Robbie, is I go look the the A pillars, and again, without trying to plug the mentorship, the like why I've picked those A pillars that they they are eight fundamentals you need. So you know your your subjective assessment. There's not going to be a book like a lot of that's almost motivational interviewing. It's it's like psychology. You know, then you've got your objective assessment, like there's FMS stuff in there. There's, there's the Gary Gray stuff in there. Um, so, you know, what I would say is just get an assessment, keep it real simple, then get your, your subjective assessment, get better at listening to people, asking questions, your program designs and all that stuff. I think, you know, you can have your, your S&C kind of program design stuff. I think that's important, but also there's, there is a bit of an art and a science to, to progress in people like you've alluded to. Your, your Franz Bosch books, Strength Training Coordination, I think has been good. Um, what else is there? Um, as I said, you know, Gary, Gary Gray's got a lot of stuff out there. Um, 
you've kind of got your, your PRI people, you've got like Gary Ward with anatomy and motion, all, all of these people. You've got like neurokinetic therapy with their muscle testing stuff. But it's hard for me because I don't really agree with, with some of the stuff they're saying, but I'm glad I went through a lot of it, if that makes sense, because it, it made me the therapist I, I am today, without sounding cheesy. So I think, I think as a therapist, I think it's, it's good to, to what, look at all these resources, but have the, in the back of your mind go, okay, I'm, as you kind of alluded today, don't believe everything, like don't believe everything I say today, go and fact find, go actually, just because he said it, that mightn't be true. You know, go and see what happens with the diaphragm and the pelvic floor. I could be talking crap. You know, so I think it's, it's having the ability to read all these books, but then go, actually, you know what? I'm going to read it and I'm going to take the good bits without getting too carried away. Maybe, you know, some of the stuff there, he might be getting ahead of himself. And I think that's certainly what I try to do with, with, um, with it these days. And I'd, I'd encourage therapists to do. Like Franz Bosch's other book, Running, that's a really good book. The, the Misha uh, Human Locomotion. Uh, that's another stable. I'm just looking at my, my middle shelf here. I've got triphasic training, Caldeets. I like his stuff. Um, super training. Um, that, uh, yeah, what else? Like, I've got the fashion manipulation books up there. Mm. I don't do fashion manipulation, Stecco, but I like, I like looking at that stuff, like the DNS stuff. I've never done the DNS courses, but I've got his book up there. You know, and I'm just trying to go, okay, what are they doing? You know, and, and going, okay, how does that kind of fit into my system? What, what kind of good bits could I take out of that? What are, what, are, what are the common themes? Like, what are they doing that I'm doing? What aren't they doing? What aren't I doing that they're doing that maybe I should be looking at? And just, just kind of taking stuff without get going all in, I suppose. That's, that's probably the advice I'd give to, to a new grad therapist now is, is look at your eight pillars and go, right, what can I read to, to buffer each pillar and then go from go from there if that can answer your question sorry yeah no no great stuff fantastic stuff last two for you real quick um what are you currently reading if you are reading anything and what would be your top reading recommendation at the moment too so your, <laughs> your top and current if you have any uh you got to get me killed um so i'm i'm reading um i've just bought a visceral manipulation book which um again this, but this proves the point it's like you know, that stuff's a bit out there, but it's something that I'm just looking at at the moment. And I'm like, um, I read like one of my last books was a McKenzie book. And again, because I'm, I'm interested in looking at the ribcage elevation now. So it's like, right, why is McKenzie getting all these great results? What's he doing? So I've bought three or four of his books because I want to understand some stuff. I don't mm. necessarily particularly agree with some of that stuff. The, the visual manipulation, I've just bought that book. I'm, I'm flicking my way through it. I'm not haven't even started uh getting into it yet but 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 that's what i'm looking at now i'm like right why are these people getting these results what are they doing how are they doing it and and, and stuff like that so so that's um that's what i'm reading now what was the other question uh your your top what would, what would be your top book recommendation and it could be any book and it doesn't have to just be within the, the realm of sports medicine um good question um I don't know. I, I read I read a lot of business books nowadays as well, um, marketing and, and 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 stuff like that. Just true to the business. Um, I I would genuinely I would say Louis Gifford's Aches and Pains. You know, it's it's a trilogy, but I I think that's absolutely outstanding book. Wow. Um, and I, I think for your bang for your buck and what it's going to give you, um, in terms of helping you be a better clinician, um. I think that's that's probably the the one I'd, I'd recommend. Great stuff, Dave. Taking you for dinner. 
and you can bring five people to dinner, dead or alive. They can be real people or they can be fictitious like superheroes. Uh, who would you invite to this dinner and why? An immediate family don't count. Yeah, so I, I'd go Michael Jordan uh, mm. just because he, he's, a, he's a legend. I've got his, his picture up here, his last shot uh, with the Bulls. Um, just more for his, his work ethic and his, his leadership. Um, I'd go Louis Gifford for his, his, uh, his physio chat. Obviously, he's, he's deceased now. Um, but, you know, it'd be, it'd be an honor to, to meet him. Um, three more. <laughs> My wife might be able to hear me now, so I'll keep it clean. Um, the, who else? Uh, business-wise, maybe Dan Kennedy. He's, mm. uh, he's an internet marketing guy. Yeah, no doubt. Um, two more. Um, yeah, I'd probably go uh, Steve Jobs. I think he'd be he'd be an interesting one. And um, I better go one more. Um, one more. Uh, maybe Feldenkrais. Nice. From a physio point of view, well, not physio, but movement point of view, just to keep yeah. a keep a mix. You get a bit of everything there. If I can't. Uh, yeah, if I have to keep it clean. You're making me work for that dinner. I have three dead people to bring. <laughs> Dave, great stuff. I'll take away to you offline. And um, just before I go, where can people find out more about you and then obviously find out more about your mentorship and anything else you have to offer? And courses, I believe, once this COVID is finito, whenever it is, you'll be back traveling again. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, I was supposed to be in Australia in May and then obviously that got canned due to, uh, to, uh, to COVID. So hopefully, hopefully get back out there um when what's all this stuff uh stops so we need to get back to ireland and um we're going to go to the us as well with, with some of the courses so right. uh you can find us at the go to physio.com um that's the the easiest um uh site to get us at you'll see the the mentorship and, and various other bits we've got blogs and podcasts and and, and resources there for for therapists uh, i've got like stuff on youtube and and instagram and stuff i think my you know um I think it's my name as the Instagram one, Dave O'Sullivan Physio or something. Um, but yeah, the go to physio.com is probably the, the easiest one. Sweet. All right, that's it for today, Dave. Really do appreciate your time. I'll, to you, I'll say goodbye to you offline. Cheers, for, Robbie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. But for everyone else, until next time, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.